Good afternoon. As I think you uh, probably already know, my name is Rick Payne from ICAW's Finance and Management Faculty. Um, ICAEW's, it's a bit of a mouthful, we're going to have to work on that. Um, trusts are very glad to be sponsoring uh, the MARG event again. Before I introduce our speaker, I just wanted to remind you of the Aston MARG MCA conference in November. Um, that's on the 17th and the 18th. I'm very pleased this year that we're running that conference in association with the Management Control Association, so please do get your papers and submissions in so we can continue to develop management accounting scholarship in the UK. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce Andrew Shulston, Group Finance Director of Rolls-Royce, to deliver ICAW's Distinguished Practitioner Lecture. Having completed an MA in Engineering Science at Oxford University, and I hear on numerous occasions that the best accountants and finance people come from engineering backgrounds, Andrew qualified as a chartered accountant and then moved quickly into business. With his deep experience as a finance director, first at Enterprise Oil uh, and now at Rolls-Royce since 2003, Andrew is well placed to provide us with significant insights in today's theme of cost management. Indeed, participants on ICAW's Finance Executive Development Programme have already benefited from Andrew's mentoring and presentations. Uh, CFO rarely gets much time in the day, so we're really grateful to Andrew for giving up some of his time, and it's been particularly busy for Rolls-Royce at the moment. I sort of looked through the press announcements, and there have been numerous large contracts announced during March, and also the joint venture, um, proposed joint venture with Daimler. So very pleased that Andrew's given us some of his time. Really looking forward to hearing Andrew's uh, talk about his experiences at one of the UK's, or perhaps the UK's, leading manufacturer, but also heavily involved in the services that are integrated with that manufacturing. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming Andrew Shilston. Well, thank you very much for that uh, generous introduction. When I look at the previous speakers, the eminence of the previous speakers uh, today, I feel my contribution may have been oversold, but I shall do my best. Um, I think for a finance director or finance specialist to talk about cost management in some ways is, uh, is unusual, because I think the very best companies think about cost very, very deeply, and I think finance experts are a piece of uh, understanding how to manage cost, but by no means all of it. And what I want to try and do um, is to have a fairly quick canter through the areas where we think about cost in its different manifestations and give you some idea of the issues that we confront. Now, I'm rather, I'm rather aware, having put together this material, that probably any one of these subjects that I'm going to talk about, um, a professor probably could have stood up for an hour to talk about it with much greater intellectual rigour than I propose to do, but I think, nevertheless, I hope just having a look at Rolls-Royce and what we're doing, you can all get something out of it. Obviously, we're a manufacturing company, but I think a lot of what we do, the way we think, is common, as you'll see as we go through the presentation. It should be common to most organizations uh, of different people. Um, so how do you create an organization that thinks about cost? Um, Traditional cost, cost reduction is quite reactive in concept, but cost management, I think, is, is a deep-seated uh, state of mind. 
And I can't pretend this is easy. At Rolls-Royce, we find this extremely hard. And some of the reasons we find it hard are the following. We have spent some time in public ownership. Nothing wrong with public ownership per se, but um, for about 17 years, this was not a company that operated under normal commercial pressures. And although we were privatized in 1987, there are still some of those mindsets that linger on uh, in the organization. One of the legacies also from a very lengthy history, we had our centenary, I think, back in 2004. Uh, but one of the consequences of that uh, lengthy history is that we have one or two sites where we operate, in Derby in particular, we have another one in Indianapolis, where there's a sort of sense of entitlement that we've always been in Derby, we're always going to be in Derby, and nothing's going to change because we've always been here. So we have to, we have to fight that. The other thing is that uh, certainly the last, I would say the last 15 of the last 20 years, uh, Rolls-Royce has been all about innovation, because without innovation, we had no future. We had to find a way into the commercial aviation market uh, in the face of a defense business that largely collapsed after the end of the Cold War, and our two American competitors in the civil aerospace business were somewhat further ahead uh, than we were. So innovation, R&D, engineering, all that exciting stuff is what has largely driven Rolls-Royce for the last 15 years. And it's only really, I would say, in the last five or ten that we've realized that um, we've cracked that, we can do product, we can do technology, now that we're doing, trying to do the hard bit, which is to execute the strategy and make a success of it. The other problem I think that engineering companies have in general, or any companies I think that employ a lot of uh, people with an engineering mindset, is that they favor complexity. The solution to a problem is to get more people into a room to talk about it, not to get less people in a room and, and come to a simple answer. And one of the things that Rolls-Royce has a proliferation of is processes, and most of them are very good processes. In fact, we've hired uh, somebody from GKN, a very senior person from GKN is our head of quality, and he is amazed at the quality of our processes but he's also amazed that we don't use most of them. So, so these are the, this is the sort of historical context that you just have to bear in mind. This is why cost management as a state of mind is something that we, we struggle with a lot. And of course, conventional cost reduction is something we've all done, and it's perhaps the least effective way of managing costs. And I remember when I first joined Rolls seven or eight years ago, uh, we had a purchasing department that thought that uh, going and beating up on your suppliers for lower prices was the way you reduce costs. Before I joined the company, we thought that reducing IT spend was simply outsourcing an intractable problem to somebody who would solve it for you. And of course, if you don't outsource uh, a concept in IT that you fully understand, the, the, the outsourcer simply takes advantage of you. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. Um, and R&D, fundamentally, in an organization like Rolls, you can't afford to stop. And one of our competitors 
back in the 1980s, took their foot off the R&D gas, and they have moved from a position of something like 70-80% market share in the 1970s to being a poor third in wide-body engines where we dominate. And the problem with looking at cost in this way, and that's the picture of the spring, you may have been wondering what that was all about, but the problem with managing cost in this way is you simply push down on that spring, you reduce cost, you take the pressure off the spring, and it all comes back again. So you have to engineer the company in a different way or the organization in a different way to really drive out cost. And the first thing I would say is, before I get into the how, is that um, you've got to have the luxury of having time to do it. I mean, I remember three years ago before the credit crisis uh, hit us all that I was inundated with the high priests of corporate finance who came to talk to me to tell me that my balance sheet was inefficient and what I needed was more debt. Um, I resisted those siren voices and I can't pretend I was to foresee that uh, the credit crisis would envelop the world, but I have to tell you I was mightily grateful that I hadn't loaded up the balance sheet with two or three billion pounds worth of debt, which I could easily have done, and woke up one morning and found that uh, uh, the banking system was about to fall apart uh, and the company would have been under potentially under immense pressure. So the advantage that that financial flexibility gave us is that through the downturn we carried on. We largely didn't cut our spend on R&D, we didn't really lay off any people and in fact we started to increase the investment in IT and we couldn't have done any of those things without having time and without having the right financial strategy. Now, what I'm going to do now is have a fairly quick canter through some fairly Rolls-Royce-specific stuff, and you'll forgive me for some of the acronyms. Rolls-Royce is full of them. I come across new ones every day. RFP means Request for Proposals. Um, we are a B2B business. We don't have uh, customers in the conventional sense. We don't have consumers, but we, have, we sell to other businesses. So... We get requests for proposals all the time from people like Boeing and Airbus, uh, from people that make ships, uh, make power stations, whatever it is, they want power of one sort or another, and they ask us to bid uh, to make a product. And this is an immensely challenging task because you're bidding in a competitive marketplace and all companies, and we certainly try and have a clear idea of what technologies we have which are ready to be deployed and which are just ideas somewhere out there in the ether, which are ideas of no more than that. But competition forces you to put things on the table, to put ideas into products that are right at the very edge of what you think you can do. So it's an extraordinarily fine judgment to work out what technologies you can bid to win a piece of business. So design risk is a, is a tremendous potential generator of cost. Can you bid something that you uh, has a chance of meeting the specification, and then does it meet the specification? And for us, um, it may sound a small difference, but for an airline, if we miss the fuel efficiency of a gas turbine by 1%, that can cost them tens of millions of dollars in fuel cost in a year. 
And in many cases, we have to guarantee that. So if we bid that an engine will meet a certain specification and it falls short by a percentage point, we very often contractually have to make that difference up to the consumer. So misjudging our technology, key risk. Can we make it? Um, some of the products we make are immensely complex, and I think it, it's not only our industry that has this issue. I mean, you've seen it in the auto industry time and time again. Product recalls. Toyota, how many product recalls did they have last year? And in the previous four or five years, even German companies, U US companies, and so forth. And mostly these were to do with manufacturing issues, where there was some flaw either in the product conceptualization or in how it was conceived to be capable of being manufactured. And it generates enormous cost when you have to rectify those things after the event. Manufacturing. I'm not, as you can see from my CV, I'm not, I'm not primarily a manufacturing expert. I've picked what little knowledge I have of manufacturing. I've picked it up along the way. So I wouldn't pretend to, uh, to in any way lecture you about manufacturing, but I have found this absolutely fascinating. And the interesting thing about the way people think about manufacturing is that it applies to almost anything whether you're looking at um, a professional service, whether you're looking at a function within a business like HR or purchasing or finance or something like that, this thinking is very, very applicable across all these uh, sorts of um, ideas and activities. And fundamentally, just to give you some sense of scale here, um, we've got a big initiative at the minute to improve our manufacturing processes. And the sort of quantum of cost that we're looking at to get our hands around here is measured in a small number of hundreds of millions of pounds per annum. So if we can save 200 million pounds per annum on cost, and you apply a conventional stock market multiple to that, you can see that we can create enormous value in terms of our share price and value for our shareholders that's probably more than equivalent to a whole new engine program. And this has been a massive um, mindset shift that we've caused in the organization. We've made people realize that this isn't just about whizzy new products. It's actually about doing it right, doing it right first time and doing it well. And the difference between doing it badly and doing it well is massive. And where we start, really, is, is I mean, some of this will be very familiar to you. Most of you, I suspect, or some of you at least, will be will use these sort of concepts uh, all the time. Um, but the concept of right first time, I guess, is, is an objective. And it's a, it, it happens if you do all these other things properly. But right first time, certainly if you're in the auto industry, where your margins on a car are measured in hundreds of dollars per car, you simply cannot afford to take a vehicle off the production line and rework it with defects. And although the margins in our industry are bigger, if you don't get things right first time, it creates massive disturbance in flow through factories. And frankly, it's the same whether you're thinking about a finance activity that's processing transactions or generating reports or whatever it is. If you don't do it right first time, it creates massive cost. Now, process flow definition sounds a very dry subject. Um, we have a gentleman called John Neal on our board who is the chief executive of a company called Unipart. And if you work for Unipart, 
um, when you join the company, you do not get a full-time contract. You're taken on for six months, and if after six months you get the Unipart way, then you get a full-time contract. And the Unipart way is a way of thinking, and it applies, and I've seen this happen, it's not just anecdote, I've actually seen it. The Unipart way applies even if you're behind the sandwich uh, counter in the canteen, it applies equally at that level to a warehouse man or to anybody else. And it's all about saying that um, it's your job, whatever you're doing, to identify the key processes you're responsible for and improve them. And if you don't commit to do that, this is the unit part psychology, if you don't commit to do that, whatever you're doing, then the company's really not interested in taking you on. And actually, it's tremendously empowering for people because what it means is that everybody feels they can make a contribution. It doesn't matter whether you're a cleaner or a sandwich maker or whatever it is, if you can improve what you do and add value, then that is recognized by the organization and it is a tremendously empowering sort of concept. Now, of course, if you don't um, measure things, they don't change. So it's absolutely fundamental to have... Uh, to use that old phrase, KPIs. We have uh, a, a sort of dashboard concept where you have key things that you measure. If you don't measure things, they don't change. So fundamentally important to work out what you need to manage, measure it, and then do something about it. Visual tools. I talked earlier about processes and how uh, complexity is anathema to managing cost. We have hundreds and hundreds of processes. People don't use them. Why don't they use them? Because they're inaccessible, they're not user-friendly. And increasingly we're saying, if we have processes, you describe them on one piece of paper, and on the second piece of paper, you have a picture. And actually, as soon as you start to go global, when you operate across the globe, that becomes even more important. There's no point having 14 pages buried in your website somewhere, all in English, uh, which is pretty inaccessible and incomprehensible to somebody who speaks very good English, but when you move to Germany or the States or anywhere else, it's completely useless. So visual tools, this is now a well-understood concept in most factories. It's very rare not to see in well-run factories, it's very rare not to see a very visual uh, expression of what's going on today and tomorrow, what all the key things to uh, focus on are, and where individuals have a role to play. Very, very powerful technique. And last but not least, tools and techniques. All the time, we're looking to embrace modern manufacturing techniques. So very sim simple examples of what I'm talking about. We have a concept called a fly-to-buy ratio because we manufacture and machine complicated parts out of pieces of metal. And the fly-to-buy ratio is the difference between so if you have a fly-to-buy ratio of 10 to 1, for example, what it means is that you waste 90% of the material. You machine it all off in arriving at that small, complicated component that you want. Now, obviously, if you can start with less material and you've got a casting or forging process or whatever it is that gets you closer to that smaller shape that you want, you reduce the amount of waste and you have a transformation effect on your manufacturing efficiency. And we spend a lot of money with universities, um, getting these sorts of ideas uh, properly elaborated, getting test cells built, proving these manufacturing
capabilities and then slowly integrating them into our factories. We're a very regulated industry, so this has to be done carefully. But again, this has a transformational effect, potentially. And I guess if you just extrapolate this to non-manufacturing businesses, it's just about being open to new ideas. There's always a better way of doing things. But you have to be careful how you introduce them into organizations because they, they can destabilize other things. They have knock-on effects. And these new ideas have to be mature and stable and capable before you build them in, or at least before we build them into how we operate. And before I joined Rolls, I didn't know, really know what logistics was. I thought it was about trucks running around the countryside with, with fresh fruit and vegetables on. But, but companies like Rolls and other global businesses are fantastically complex in terms of how our supply chains operate. About two-thirds of what we put into an engine comes from our supply chain. We have suppliers all over the world. And how you control, how you plan, how many components you need at any point in time to be delivered to a factory uh, to, to optimize the amount of inventory you've got to make sure your customers are happy is an immensely challenging task. The good thing is that modern ERP tools are up to that job. And we can actually plan right down to very, very small component levels. We can plan inventory levels so that you're, uh, the idea of a long pole is that you've got some part of your supply chain that you're particularly dependent on. Perhaps it's particularly weak. The lead times are longer. So the long pole, if you like, is the weak point in your supply chain. And with good ERP planning tools, you can get right down to that level of granularity and plan to um, make sure that you have sufficient buffering in your system, or whatever it is, to make sure you don't get disturbed. Of course, if you get this wrong, uh, the cost is obvious. If you have too much inventory around you, you've got all that carrying cost. And if you get irritate your customers because you're never delivering on time, you will wind up paying liquidated damages at worst, or at best, just having an extremely irritating customer. Irritating customer. All customers are irritating too, but an irritating customer. Um, this is a science in itself, and it's tremendously important. And it's a very professionalized activity in Rolls-Royce. As I said, we have a very uh, outsourced business model. And... The start point here, really, is to have a very honest conversation with ourselves about what we need to make and what we buy. And what that's all about is um, some key questions which are relevant for any business that's full of intellectual property. What things do you need to control? What things can you not afford to have somebody else involved in making because they can copy your intellectual property and I'm not going to mention countries where this is a particular risk, uh, but we are extremely careful. Intellectual property is at the heart of what we do. We're extremely careful about who has access to that. So we make things that have a lot of intellectual property in. We also make things that are uh, very spareable. In other words, they wear out, so they're needed by customers. So we, we think very deeply about what we should make, what we need to control, how intellectual property needs to be uh, looked after, and fundamentally, we need to work out whether we're any good at making it. 
and increasingly there are suppliers to, uh, to our industry who, who, who manufacture for our competitors. We don't mind that because these are pretty standardized components that we have no skill in making compared to our competitors and it's a better idea to let somebody else make them and have all the benefits of volume. Conventional supplier relationships are just that. They're supplier relationships. Notice the terminology here. We have an annual conference with our suppliers, and we call it a partner conference. And that term is very deliberate. And it's, it's about having a much more productive and collaborative relationship with, with, a, with somebody who's in the supply chain rather than some, regarding it as somebody you're on the other side of a desk writing a contract with. So we find that we get tremendous benefit from getting trust into our supply chain because if you, if you cast your mind back roles 10, 15 years ago, we were probably uh, number three in, in, in the aerospace market compared to our competitors. And our suppliers were always questioned whether the demand signal we gave them was ever going to materialize. And it was partly because we kept changing it, and it was partly because we were number three in the market. Our suppliers simply didn't trust that demand signal, so they wouldn't invest. So we had very little ability to, when we could see further demand, there was tremendous skepticism from the supply chain that and they were not prepared to invest against it. So investing in these relationships turning them into partnership relationships, not more conventional adversarial supplier relationships, has been absolutely fundamental to managing our supply chain successfully. And globalization is something we all deal with, but there are obvious benefits, and it's not just about labor cost, uh, which obviously is a factor. But uh, most countries around the world now, I mean, it always have been, but particularly now, are very keen to foster jobs. And um, usually the way countries think about this, and the UK is starting to think like that, interestingly, after sort of 20 years of watch, watching manufacturing decline, um, there's, a, there's a different view, I think, coming out of government, which is to think about how do you attract businesses that attract other businesses. So we are quite um, hard-nosed about this when we want to uh, build new factories, we will bid uh, Virginia in the United States against Singapore against the UK. And this is all very open. It's all the, you know, all the data is fully available to everybody. And we allow countries to compete. So they will compete with, and it's not just labor costs. It could be um, all sorts of things to do with grants, training, uh, perhaps leases on factories, availability of land, whatever it is together with currency effects that may or may not be, be useful. So how we think about globalization is, is very complex, but there are tremendous advantages to be had. And, and it's, it's not just labor costs. I mean, if we look at Singapore, uh, we've, we're in the process of building a huge factory in Singapore to assemble engines. And the difference between, dare I say it, the way Derby reacts to our requests to build new factories or, or to try and get uh, new access roads built to new factories, to the attitude that's taken in Singapore, where you ask for something and a week later it's done, 
Um, I mean, I fully understand that Singapore is not. You cannot. You cannot say that we should. We should aim to imitate Singapore because it's a very homogenous sort of society. But, but I think the UK is just starting to. Really, I'm getting slightly political discourse here, which I'll move off fairly quickly. But. Um, <laughs> What I'm really trying to say is that I think companies are quite hard-nosed about this stuff. <clears throat> and we certainly are. We hunt around the world to find out where we can get the best package of support uh, for what we need to do. Of course, there are downsides. You get extended supply chains, and we are not immune from the difficulties that are being faced in Japan right now. Uh, it's been much publicized, I think, that the auto industry uh, would be under pressure but we have a key supplier that's um, 30 kilometers outside the exclusion zone around the nuclear reactor. And it's been very, very traumatic. I mean, never mind Rolls-Royce, but for the employees in the factory and their families. Um, and it's completely traumatized that part of the country. So you know, globalization is, is it's a fashionable concept, and there are many benefits to be had from it. And I think in some ways, there are some signs that perhaps some companies have gone too far. You've seen some companies, for example, call centers, things like that, where they've found that the degradation in customer service through taking these call centers or customer interfaces overseas has been too great, and they've brought them back onshore. And I think it's possible that maybe global manufacturing has, has taken globalization to an extreme. Um, and for any of you who are interested, and no reason why you should be, but uh, Boeing has got an extremely outsourced approach to the construction of its new wide-body aircraft, and there's been a massive amount of publicity about the wisdom of having huge pieces of the wing made in Japan, another bit of the fuselage made in Italy, another component somewhere else, and you've got to try and bring it all together in one place and have it all bolt together. And it's very, very complex to manage. So, lots of pluses and minuses. The customer interface. Um, I, uh, for my sins, as well as looking after finance, I look after the commercial function. And the commercial function spends a lot of time thinking about the customer interface, how it's defined, how it's defined contractually. And this is also a point where you can create massive cost if it's not crystal clear in the contract where the balance of risks lies. Now, obviously, if you're buying a consumer product, that may be less less important. Uh, but if you're in a B2B business, uh, it is hugely important. And it's very important because the insurance industry, we all rely on insurance for third party or uh, cover or product liability, whatever it is, they look at the integrity of contracts at the customer interface and they will provide insurance on an assumption of where costs lie. So if the costs prove not to lie where your contracts uh, have said, that's not only a real cost to you, but you may find that insurance becomes a problem to deal with. And I'm, I won't go into the details of it, but I, there's a particular uh, product issue that we have in Rolls-Royce at the moment where I'm spending a lot of time uh, fretting about this. So standardization of contracts, clarifying who bears risk is absolutely important. But, and it's a big but, relationships with customers should not be legalized. Not, should not be legalized in the sense that the first thing you do with a customer is a problem is to send in a lawyer. Uh, the first thing you should do with a customer is try and help them out. And very much the ethos in Rolls-Royce is that when our customers have problems, we pour resource in. So 
um, without in any way wishing to suggest that uh, flying is unsafe. It's a massively regulated, extremely safe form of transport, an order of several orders of magnitude safer than, than, than walking across the road or anything like that. But things happen. Maintenance issues crop up. And the first thing we do is put engineers on a plane. We don't argue about who's paying the airfare. You put them on a plane with the right equipment to get out to the customer to help them get flying again. And that creates immense value. As soon as you resort to lawyers, the trust breaks down, the cost builds, and the only people that benefit, frankly, are lawyers. And they make a lot of money out of it. So customer support. Once you've sold a product, how do you look after it? Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about making what the customer sees and feels and touches very responsive and friendly. Uh, one of the competitive advantages we think we have compared to uh, one of the other companies we compete with, an American company, I won't name the name, um, is that we have, as I say, we have an approach that's not legalistic. And we try and make our, our, uh, our face quite user-friendly. And the, this picture here you can see on the right is what we call our operations room. And there is technology now embedded in aircraft which enable us to monitor in real time when you're flying across the Pacific uh, on a wide-body aircraft, we know exactly what's going on in that engine in real time. And it's monitored on a screen in our operations room, and we can monitor temperatures and vibration and pressures and all these things so that we know if, um, because we have uh, sophisticated software tools that can predict wear mechanisms and so forth, you can anticipate a maintenance event. And that is hugely powerful. Because what kills an airline is having what's called an AOG. That means an aircraft on the ground. And what that means is, if any of you have experienced it, that you, you find yourself in an airport and you're told the flight's cancelled, uh, and suddenly the, the airline has got to find hotel rooms for three or 400 people, and it creates massive bad feeling as well as tremendous cost. So being able to anticipate maintenance events creates huge value for the customer and avoids a massive amount of cost. And that's what these people are doing here. They're monitoring all these aircraft all over the world in real time and working out uh, how to optimize fleet utilization. And of course, as businesses get bigger, you absolutely have to standardize the back end. And that has been a massive challenge for Rolls-Royce, where we've grown very fast, uh, and we've had anything but standardized processes, standardized contracts and everything else, and you simply collapse on your own weight if you don't solve this problem. And so how we create very simple, for example, service contracts, um, we have our business model is, is like a razor blade model. We sell, not all our businesses, but in our civil aerospace business, we sell big gas turbines for not nearly enough money. And then there's an aftermarket or spares business that goes on for about 20 years. And we came up with a rather clever idea, which is that we will uh, turn that spares business into a service. So we say to the customer, we will charge you on a utilization basis. The phraseology is power by the hour. So every hour the customer uses that engine, they pay a number of dollars per hour. That's all they need to know. They don't need to worry about maintenance, spare engines, engineers. That's our problem. 
So it's a very revolutionary thought that. It's turning the whole utilization of a physical asset into a service. And it, all it does is it, it, it makes for the customer, if you think about that, they've removed any uncertainty about frequency of overhaul or cost of overhaul or having engineering resource or anything like that. It's all passed across the table to us and we manage that cost for them. And it, in a very, very sort of as far as the customer's concerned, in a very, very standardised way. But clearly, if we're going to do that, our own processes have to be standardised because it means we've taken on all that risk of making sure our products are there 24 hours a day for our consumers. Now, obviously, there has to be a good feedback loop into the design manufacturer process. As you find things don't work in service, there needs to be a pretty rapid feedback loop into the manufacturing cycle. And we're pretty adept at doing that, too. Overheads. Um, for my sins, I chair something called the, uh, the functional executive. It sounds like a rather ghastly term, that. But, but we have about 12, 12 or 13 significant functions. Um, and they're not just the obvious ones, like finance and HR and purchasing, but they're also manufacturing, engineering, commercial, legal, logistics, and so on. And what we're trying to do is to raise the level of performance of all of these services and all these functions across the company. And the basic concepts we're trying to use <clears throat> are fairly simple, that you try and strip out of each function the standard activities and you put them into service centers. And you most obviously see this in companies in uh, shared service centers of finance and HR. It's commonly done. Um, and the whole concept of IT is very much in that mold that you don't, uh, any user of IT in a company doesn't have to be a specialist. There is a shared service center that does all that for you. But what we're trying to do is to raise all the functions games so that all the functions think about um, being very user-friendly to the, to the businesses that need to use those functions. We insist that the functions benchmark themselves where that, where that data is available, and very often outside organizations can do this for you. Have a very clear vision of what success means for that function, what the journey towards that, uh, that description of success is, and embracing common concepts like sharing uh, having shared service centres and identifying common processes and so forth. And it's um, tremendously valuable. I mean, I think we are, it, it's, it's a multi-year journey um, and some of our functions, HR and finance, are quite far advanced and we're moving up the food chain all the time in how we think about this. Most companies have got some sort of shared service centre for basic transaction processing and finance. It's a, it's a very... It's a, it's a surprise if companies don't have that these days. But once you've um, embraced that idea, it's quite a short step to say, well, we won't just process transactions centrally, but we can do other things. We can create budgets. We can create uh, management reports. We can uh, produce uh, capital appraisal uh, forms or something like that. There are more and more higher-valued activities that can be put into shared service centres. And then you have somebody called a business partner who is actually embedded in the business, who pulls on these capabilities 
And that business partner then becomes, as the, na the name suggests, part of the team and isn't something, you know, playing a more traditional financial controller type role, for example, in finance, but as actually deeply embedded in the team. It's a very different way of, of thinking about overheads and how those services are provided. Capability. Um, I think I've talked a little bit about IT. I mean, we've had... Uh, I think I can safely say a nightmare uh, with IT in Rolls-Royce in the last 15 years. Um, and it's not in any way critical of previous management. It's simply that um, we outsourced IT about 13 years ago when it was quite, uh, quite a new concept. And as I, as I said earlier, we outsourced a bag of bits, frankly. And what we didn't outsource was a, was a clean-cut uh, requirement with a very clean description of exactly what it was we wanted um, and we completely lost the ability to be an intelligent buyer and it was uh, EDS that had the contract and they had a complete stranglehold not only over the management of our infrastructure but also over all of the implementation projects to put in new pieces of software, design software and whatever it happens to be and it was a very very bad contract um, for all sorts of reasons I won't go into because I think it's almost it is a, a sort of case study in itself but we've now got control of that back in Rolls-Royce um, we have made sure that we're not dependent on anybody uh, to do everything that we want so we have sort of silos of expertise and we use different suppliers to do different things but for us um, IT is for all companies I guess it, it's, it's not just um, how you differentiate yourself if you don't have good IT you simply don't have a seat at the table and as we become more globalised we, be we have to enable our employees to walk, to travel around the world with their, with their kit to plug into a, a socket wherever they are in the world and immediately access all of their information all the data they need wherever they are in the world um, that's not an easy thing to do in organizations that try and protect their intellectual property as most companies do so you have to find a way of managing that R&D I think is one of the most extraordinarily difficult things to get right um, how you judge how much you need to spend to stay competitive and frankly it doesn't, it's not just a manufacturing company all companies generate intellectual property um, you're trying to create capabilities uh, which, which you can turn into value for a customer. How you determine how much to spend on that is a massively challenging subject. And what I've learned in the oil industry where their equivalent upstream of uh, R&D was the drilling budget, uh, and in Rolls-Royce it's blue sky research and technology. If you ask engineers how much money they would like to spend, the answer is almost always four times as much as you can afford. And that's the nature of it, because Engineers are fascinated by innovation, and that's a good thing. Um, and it, whether it's engineers or in other sorts of organizations, people that are in the idea creation business will always come up with more ideas than you can resource. And that is actually a good thing, because then you can, then, you can prioritize. But we spend a lot of time trying to work out what our competitors are doing, how good are we at doing similar sorts of things, and how can we advantage ourselves in a cost-efficient way. And ultimately... Um, that is what will differentiate us. If we're, re if we're ever reduced 
to selling something akin to a can of beans like the other guy's can of beans, we're just going to lose, uh, lose margin and profitability. So that's something we spend a huge amount of time thinking about. And last but not least, people. I mean, it's, uh, it's perhaps too um, hackneyed to say that people are uh, assets, not costs. But I do worry about the way big organizations think about people because the fashion is for everybody to have objectives. The fashion is for everybody to have incentives linked to objectives. And then everybody's got to have a professional development review process and all the rest of it. A lot of that is great stuff. But actually, the more you put people in, in, in the straitjacket of objectives and payment for performance, the less you get bandwidth, the less you get people thinking about what's going on around them. Because by definition, almost by definition, any plan or budget that any organization writes down and gets approved is out of date within two or three weeks. And you set up all those objectives for individuals and all their bonuses and all their incentives based on a baseline that becomes out of date very quickly. So that is a tremendous challenge. And I think organizational psychology and leadership psychology is a massively important subject. Time and time again, we find in Rolls-Royce, it's not better budgets or better targets or better incentives. It's better leaders. And if you can find a leader and put them into a factory that's struggling, it has a massively transformational effect. Now, what is it that does that? I mean, I'm not, I'm not nearly clever enough as an organizational psychologist to know how do you define leadership, how do you capture the essence of it. But a good leader has a massively beneficial effect, I think, that far outweighs the sort of over-professionalization, if I can put it like that, of how you manage people. And last but not least, you can throw your money at the wrong things. Uh, we spend a huge amount of time thinking about differentiating ourselves from everybody else, trying not to do the same thing, trying to create barriers to entry. As I said, Rolls-Royce had its centenary in 2004. You could argue we've spent 100 years building this brick wall you can see there down the bottom right-hand side and keeping our competitors at bay. But we're starting to face new competitors. I mean, our traditional competitors are people like General Electric in the US, Pratt & Whitney, part of United Technologies. But now we have a Chinese company called Avic and an Indian company called HAL, Hindustan Aviation Limited. And all the time we're thinking about where is that threat going to come from? How soon are the Chinese going to try and do what we're going to do? Can the Indians do what we do? And how can we continue to make uh, the entry into our industry more difficult? And that's fundamentally about technology and capability. So I think that's probably about it. I mean, I apologize if that's a rather sort of superficial ramble through a, a very extensive list of subjects. But um, I thought rather than sort of dive deeply into one thing, it might be more interesting just to go across the waterfront and give you a taste of all the issues that we, uh, we wrestle with. So I think we've got a few minutes for questions. Questions. 
Honlow Aston University. Um, no, I thought that was incredibly interesting. And just to show it's not all about accounting, what strikes me as interesting on this last slide, you're talking about the barriers to entry, is that my impression of, um, of the car industry and of uh, your industry is that it doesn't seem to be marked much by mergers. Um, and is there a reason for that? You know, compared to some other industries, it seems to be remarkably short on merger history. Mergers? Um, well, I think you, yes, I mean, I think you could say that um, the aerospace industry is already a very consolidated industry. I mean, if you look at the car industry, um, I don't know how many dozen car manufacturers there are around the world, and I would completely agree that there look to be rather too many. But if you look at the aerospace industry, there are really only two manufacturers of large aircraft. That's Boeing and Airbus. And increasingly for large engines, there's really only... General Electric and ourselves, and uh, Pratt and Whitney is a bit of a uh, a bit part player. So, I think the consolidation has largely happened. Where it hasn't happened, of course, is amongst the airlines, and there are far too many airlines. And one of the reasons is that there's this sort of nationalistic desire to have the flag carrier. So you have lots of countries that don't really have a reason to be uh, a hub as part of the global. Uh, supply of, of, of uh, aviation capacity, but they, for nationalistic reasons, they feel they have to have airlines. So, so one of the Achilles heels of the aerospace industry is that the customer base, or customer customers, are very weak. And um, without getting too technical, it's one of the reasons why our credit rating is where it is. We have no net debt, but we have a single A credit rating. One of the reasons for that is that most of our customers are not particularly bankable businesses. Because most airlines around the world, if you look in the United States, most of the airlines in the United States have been in and out of bankruptcy at least twice in the last 20 years. Uh, and British Airways is always staggering from sort of pillar to post on whether it's going to make it or not. And that's the problem. So I think consolidation needs to happen amongst the airlines, but it, it's very difficult for political reasons. There's a question at the front here. important part of cost control is stock control. Um, what's your view about the Japanese system of just-in-time? Well, I think, it's, uh, I think today's events are, are demonstrating that there are risks to that. And just-in-time, when it works, is extremely successful. I mean, you reduce the funding cost on the balance sheet. But I think what we're all learning, whether it was the credit crisis or whether it's uh, the various earthquakes that have been in the last four or five years, that just in time doesn't cater for the unknown. And I think that, um, as I was saying earlier, the idea of extended supply chains where what you need is delivered in hourly slots um, is increasingly being questioned. I think if customers accept that they potentially will not get what they want on time, that's fine. But if customers believe that they're going to get what they want uh, on the contract date, then just in time is, um, in the end, it will, it will prove when you have one of these random events, it's going to be an expensive experience. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing very um, intellectual one can say about that. I mean, I think it's a great idea. It certainly reduces carrying costs. I mean, we have too much inventory on our balance sheet. We know that. But the perils of reducing it are that we will irritate 
Boeing or Airbus and their customers. And in an industry where our success relies on relationships that extend over decades, you have to, you have to measure that, that small financial saving in, in inventory against the huge customer disruption it can cause. And that's one of the reasons why we hold the inventory that we do. Um, basically, your your model your, your model is, is that, that for every every engine that you make, you know you you have you have a twenty year maintenance contract. Um, how how you know and, and this this basically means that you know you have a very secure source of income for every successful engine that that you make. How does does this then apply maybe to, to other industries? For example, like cars, where you know they have a very limited life lifespan. You know how how do they then then work around this this, this very fast cycle? Mm. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as consumers, we can all buy maintenance contracts. We are offered them all the time by people selling washing machines, televisions, and you can buy them for cars. But I think they've become um, they've been called into disrepute. I think in the consumer uh, arena because businesses are proved to make too much money out of them. So I think the the suspicion is amongst consumers. I mean, if you read most consumer publications, they will say, you're better off self-insuring. You know, if you've got a dozen of these things, it's better off just putting 20 pounds in the bank every month and just self-insuring the risk rather than paying lots of companies to do it for you. So I think the reason that airlines do it is that uh, these are such massively expensive assets and the cost to them of... Um, getting their assumptions about overhaul frequency and cost wrong, the consequences of that for their business model are so great that they put, put huge value on reducing that uncertainty, and that's why, that's why it works for them. wouldn't like Richard to go without a session of uh, ask, getting, getting a question in, and they're always such good value. So. <laughs> this is the sucker punch, is it? Yeah, that I don't... quite possibly. You <laughs> never know what might come up. This is obviously uh, an address about cost management and uh, internal issues, but you are the finance director as well. Is there any cross-link between decisions on R&D and how they're going to have to be accounted for in the financial statements and the fact that they're accounted for different under US GAAP to mm -hmm. IFRS? Is this a factor? And if it's so, is it a big factor? Mm -hmm. and is it a constraining factor or a freeing factor? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, uh, we, we changed our accounting across onto IFRS, I lose track of time, five or six years ago. And um, we do have quite a lot of volatility in our results, depending on how much R&D is capitalised versus how much is expensed. And it's always a source of some irritation, given the markets. We're all slaves to the market, and the market wants 10% earnings growth every year. And then you find how much you find your R&D the piece that you're expensing can move plus or minus 50 million, and you have to make it up from somewhere else. Now, we have never, ever, ever said to the engineers, you can't spend that because that means that we're going to take too much of a hit in our P&L and we can't tolerate that. We don't run our R&D programs like that for the simple reason that they extend over so many years that you can't switch them on and off. So it's why, why financial strength is so important. You've got to have a view about what you can sustain over many years. 
and then you've just got to manage the profit and loss uncertainty. And there are so many other variables, frankly, in our business that it's just one of the things you, you have to manage. But it's, uh, you know, if it was a private company, you might take a different view of it. But, but, but I'm afraid the markets in which we live, where investors have short attention spans and analysts' attention spans are even shorter than that, um, you know, it's 10% earnings growth or whatever it is. It's got, to be, it's got to be a measurable increase. And frankly, this is stuff you just have to eat. It's volatility, something you've just got to manage. Time for just one last question here in the front over there. Hi, Ian Herbert, Loughborough University. Uh, as you were talking about manufacturing, I can see there's a uh, balancing act going on there between um, yeah, very complex uh, procedures and processes that have to be followed and a lot of regulatory control in the manufacturing operations and also uh, balancing that against uh, innovation and uh, continual improvement. And I just wonder particularly with regard to the finance function, how you're sort of uh, balancing the sort of need for creativity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, strong financial control and particularly risk compliance uh, uh, regimes. Well, it is a fascinating question actually about, and it's not just about manufacturing but also engineering, where, where the mantra from all of this is standardization processes and control. And we did start to worry about two or three years back that we were using, losing just that edge of creativity amongst the engineers and um, about a year ago we actually sent about 20 or 30 of them off to a, a completely separate building and we asked them just to think about the future in a completely unconstrained way because if you just do what everybody else is doing which is improve processes and grind out the non-conformance and do the right, right first time stuff, progressively you all converge on the same level of performance. So in order to make that sort of breakthrough every now and again, you've got to sort of detach people from all of that and say, look, put all that to one side. If you were given a clean sheet of paper, how would you do this differently? And we've had to make a conscious effort to do that. I think that's more relevant on the engineering side where you're creating new technologies. But on the manufacturing side, I'm afraid the value of decent, standardized, and effective processes is so great that that is the ultimate prize. On the engineering side, I think, I think it's different. I know there are lots of other questions, but um, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Andrew, once to uh, hand back to Michael who I think is just going to draw proceedings to a close. Thank you very much indeed. Um, you'd think, wouldn't you, being an, the organiser, you could ask the question you really want to, but you're not allowed to by other people. I was going to ask you, and luckily you don't have to answer this. You don't have to answer this. I was merely going to ask you whether, in any, in any sense at all, do you measure or attempt to measure intellectual capacity, uh, intellectual capital? Um. You don't have to answer that. No, no, well, I think if I knew how to measure it, I'd love to have a go. But um, <laughs> I think it's, it's very hard. I mean, obviously, we have um, training programs and the like which, which try and make sure in a rather <clears throat> negative sense that everybody is brought up to a level of 
of capability. And we have, uh, in the organization, we, have, we distinguish between people who want to be uh, technical specialists and people who want to be, you know, have general management skills. And we're very careful that we allow people to progress up the organization as fast with technical capability as they can with management capability. So there isn't a sort of apartheid within the organization. And we spend a lot of time um, you know, making sure that that intellectual property is continually refreshed and we get the very best people. How on earth you measure it, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I suspect you will not be very um, uh, likely to take this on board. Uh, one of the very large uh, pharmaceutical firms I know of attempts to put the net present value of intellectual capital into their management accounts, not into their um, uh, audit accounts. Anyway, thank you very much indeed. And um, I now have to close this uh, uh, meeting. And um, uh, I've already been told off by some of the English Institute members by saying that what I always do is thank the sponsors in alphabetical order. I will therefore thank the sponsors yet again, uh, but this time I shall mention ICAEW first and SEMA second. Now then, to more interesting things. Uh, today's been very interesting, but uh, my, I understand that most of you really come for the buffet. Um, that will be in the main building this is another journey round LSE you can discover various places. This is um, in the main building on the fifth floor. Do not go to the sixth floor, the fifth floor. But other than that, it's the same place. Um, the other thing is, remember, you may have put your coats or your cases in the um, room upstairs. Please get them out, otherwise we will sell them. We are in need of every penny. Thank you very much indeed.